0: Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at
1: Bethelpbc.us.
0: As we came to the conclusion of our message last week, I sort of glossed over two verses that are very important. And I want to go back and look at these two verses this morning and bring what is essentially a doctrinal message today on basic doctrines and draw from these two verses several major doctrines that are important to an understanding of how sinners are saved and those verses in chapter 5 are verses 8 and 9 which read as follows though he were a son yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered and being made perfect He became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. And it is this last expression which says that Jesus is the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him that raises a question that has been debated in religious circles for many, many years. and That is the question, is eternal salvation conditional? you look at the text again, it says he is the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. And because of this verse, there are religious groups claiming the name of Christian who say that a person must obey the Lord in order to be saved. That is, if you want eternal salvation, you must perform good works such as obedience. For Jesus is the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. So that's the question that is before us this morning. Is eternal salvation conditional? And the answer that this passage is going to give us today is that the passage illustrates the importance of understanding the law of cause and effect. Now that's a law that every one of us uses every day in our lives, the law of causality. It's one of the basic laws of logic the law of cause and effect whether you're a homemaker or you're a auto mechanic or you're a medical doctor or you're an accountant practicing balancing books every one of us uses the law of cause and effect every day and when we interpret the bible it is crucial that we understand that the bible does not contradict itself and that the Bible is reasonable, it is rational, it is logical. In fact, one of the names of Jesus in the Gospel of John is he is called the Word. And you may know that the word, Word in that text is the Greek word logos, from which we get our word logic. God is not double-minded. He does not embrace contradictory principles. Our God is very logical, and the ability to think logically and rationally, is a product of the nature of God as the logos, or the God of rational principles. In the Bible, no two verses contradict each other. Someone once said that when the world's thinking contradicts the Bible, we need to be like Moses when he found an Egyptian smiting a Hebrew, he killed the Egyptian. (laughs) Let God be true and every man a liar. But when two verses in the Bible seem to contradict each other, we need to try to reconcile them. For the contradiction is not in the word of God, but in our understanding. For God is not contradictory. He doesn't contradict himself. And understanding the law of cause and effect, this universal law of logic, is a very important key to studying the Bible. Now, every medical doctor, when diagnosing a patient, uses the law of cause and effect. If you go into your doctor and say, Doctor, I'm having a pain in my chest. Immediately, he takes the symptom that you've presented, the pain in your chest, and he begins to try to rule out possible causes. What could be causing that symptom, that effect? He traces the symptoms back to the cause. If you say, I have a headache, then he's going to ask a number of other questions in his attempt to diagnose the problem. And if a young medical student cannot trace the symptoms back to the root cause, then he probably won't be a very good doctor. For 90% of doctoring is diagnosing the problem. Now, usually when I have a headache, I'll take an aspirin or a Tylenol or an ibuprofen. But as soon as the pain medication is worn off, what happens to the headache? It comes back. Because whatever is causing it, it may be that my spinal column is not lined up properly, or it may be that my diet is poor, or maybe I slept on my neck the wrong way and have a crick in my neck, or it may be some other systemic problem native to my biology. But whatever the cause is, you see, we can treat symptoms, but if we really want to cure the problem, we have to find the cause. Understanding the law of cause and effect is crucial. Well, when we come to the Bible, the Bible teaches that God is the first cause of everything that exists. Genesis 1.1 says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And if we don't understand that God is the only eternal being, that is the only one who didn't have a beginning, and everything else that exists came from him, then we will be very confused. For instance, somebody says that the universe came about as a giant explosion when two rocks collided. Well, my question is, where did the rocks come from? They say when they collided, it generated an electrical charge, and electricity gave birth to amino acids that eventually grew into the present state of life. Well, my question is, where did the electricity come from? And if you trace it back to its first cause... There is a first great cause in everything around us. And that first great cause is not matter, a rock. It is an eternal, intelligent mind, the only true and living God who is the creator of all that existed. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God didn't have a beginning. Notice the text assumes that God already is, in the beginning, God. So... If you look at the universe, if you look at planet Earth, the trees, the rivers, the mountains, the animals, man, these are effects. And the question is, where did they come from? For unless there was something that is eternal, nothing would now exist, right? What would exist if there is no God? Because something cannot come from nothing. Something has to come from something else. And the only something that has existed forever is the God of the Bible, and everything else came from him. So he's the cause, the universe is the effect. And the same is true in your salvation and mine. This text teaches that Christ's obedience is the cause of which our obedience is the effect. Look at the text again. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience. That's Christ's obedience by the things which he suffered. Notice Christ's obedience in verse eight, verse nine is our obedience. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him, that's our obedience. So this passage teaches that our obedience is the effect of which Christ's obedience is the cause. And that is a very important Bible principle. Now let's extract from this text this morning A few very important major Bible doctrines and the first one that we see is the two natures of Jesus Christ and you see that in verse 8 notice the two words though and yet though he were a son capital s it's talking about Jesus isn't it though Jesus was the son of God from all eternity past that simply means though he is God a very God Though Jesus is deity, though Jesus is divine, yet he learned obedience. Though, yet, though he were a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Now here's the question. If Jesus is God from all eternity past, the second person of the Godhead, the Son of God, and when the Bible calls him the Son of God, it means that he is of the same nature as the Father. Co-essential, co-eternal. That is, even though in the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. As we sang just a moment ago in the doxology, praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. In the Godhead, even though there is a distinction of persons, yet there are not three gods, but these three are one. That's what 1 John 5 verse 7 teaches. And this is a historically Christian doctrine, the doctrine of the Trinity. And it's the only way the Bible makes sense. Let us make man in our own image, says Genesis 1.26. Who is the us in the first chapter of the Bible? It's the Trinity, the Godhead. And in the New Testament, when Jesus says, I will pray to the Father, and He will send the Comforter, the Holy Spirit. Do you see the whole Trinity there? The Son offering prayers to the Father in heaven who is going to dispatch the Holy Spirit. come as the enabler the divine helper to the church so the doctrine of the trinity is understood by christians to be orthodox that is orthodoxy is a matter of understanding the tri-personal nature the trinitarian nature of god first john 5 7 again for there are three that bear record in heaven the father the word and the holy ghost and these three are one Jesus taught us to baptize in Matthew 28, 19 by saying baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So the doctrine is crucial because when Jesus was upon this earth and he dies on the cross, has God died? And the answer to that is no, for the Father is still in heaven. But the Son of God, who was with the Father from all eternity past, was sent into this world jesus was dispatched from the portals of heaven and when he came into this world he assumed a human nature he took on a nature now he's still god but now he's added to his divine nature a human nature that is he came to take our place and this doctrine is seen in the idea though he were a son yet he learned obedience here's the question i would ask you this morning Has God ever learned anything? And the answer, of course, is absolutely not. For God is omniscient. He knows everything. There is no searching of his understanding, says Romans chapter 11, verse 32. The Bible says that he knows our thoughts from afar off. There's not a word in our tongue, but what he knows it all together, Psalm 139. His understanding is infinite, says Psalm 145, verse 17, I think it is. The idea that God could ever learn anything that he didn't know before is utterly absurd and preposterous. So in what sense then did Jesus, the Son of God, though he were a son, yet he learned some. In the sense of his human nature, when he assumed humanity, Our Lord Jesus put himself on the same level as us in every respect except for sin. And therefore, he experienced all of human life. He grew from childhood and developed. Luke 2.52 is one of the few verses that describe to us what happened in the childhood of Jesus. Have you ever noticed there's not a lot of information in the Bible about the childhood of Jesus? You see his birth, and then you see him when he begins his public ministry at age 30. What happened between uh, infancy and manhood, we have just a couple of references. One is when he was 12 years old and he was left in the temple at Jerusalem and his parents when they finally found him if you've ever been left at church, realize Jesus has been left at church before you were. His parents left and didn't realize he wasn't in the company. And when they did find him, he was disputing with the doctors and the lawyers. That's one of the episodes during his childhood. And the others in Luke 2.52 where it says the child grew, so he developed physically just like you develop physically. I see some of the young people in the congregation today, and I remember when you were just knee-high to a grasshopper. But you have grown, you're developing physically. Jesus, just like the rest of us, grew physically. He grew and he waxed strong in spirit. He developed psychologically and in favor with God. He developed in his relationship with God and with man. So it says he grew physically, he grew psychologically, he grew spiritually, and he grew socially. He developed just like we do. So in what sense could the son of God ever learn anything? Well, only in terms of his human nature and in terms of experiencing what it is to suffer. Yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. Now, if we were to define the two natures of Christ, I think the best way to say it would be that in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, there are two natures, human and divine. He's both truly God, and truly man simultaneously. These two natures are perfectly united so that he is the God-man. When the Son of God assumed a human nature at the Incarnation, each nature retained its own attributes. That is, the divine did not become human, the human did not become divine. He wasn't half God and half man, but he was truly God, truly man simultaneously, He had a human soul, he had a human intellect, he had a human body, and at the same time he's fully God and he shows us his omniscience and his omnipotence in the miracles that he performs. And you say, Brother Mike, what is the biblical case for the two natures of Jesus Christ? Well, look at the first chapter of John's Gospel in the first verse. Here we see his divine nature when it says that in the beginning... Notice how this verse starts the same way the first verse of the Bible starts. In the beginning was the Word. That is the Logos, capital W. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him and without Him was not anything made that was made. Verse 14 says, and the Word was made flesh. Notice, He assumed human nature. He's still God, He's still the Word, but now He's made flesh. And that little babe that was born in Bethlehem's manger was more than a man, more than human. He was fully God, truly God. Colossians 1.19 puts it like this, For it pleased the Father that in Him should all fullness dwell. Chapter 2, verse 9 of Colossians says, In Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Everything that God is was packed into that little span of an infant. And you say, preacher, that's a mystery, and I would agree with you. It is the great mystery of godliness. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness that God was manifest in the flesh. In fact, this own book of Hebrews tells us in chapter 2, verse 14, that he took not on him the nature of angels, but the seed of Abraham, for in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. Why did God assume human nature at the incarnation? Because Jesus came where we were. Because man was in trouble. And death was required. Without the shedding of blood, there could be no remission of our sins. And Jesus came for the express purpose of dying in your place and in mine. That we might have eternal salvation. You see, Jesus came to do what Adam failed to do. The first man, Adam, was made the representative of all the human race. But Adam transgressed God's law. He abused his free will, and he disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden when he ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And at that moment, man fell into a state of spiritual death and alienation from God. My beloved, because of Adam's transgression, all of the suffering and the pain and the evil that we see in the world around us is there. Had Adam never sinned, this world would still be the Garden of Eden. It'd still be paradise. Man and animal would still get along in perfect harmony. All of nature would be verdant. There would be no thorns and thistles and sweat of our brow in order to make our bread. There would be none of the pain of childbearing and childrearing. The whole world would be a paradise, my friends, had Adam never sinned. But because of the first representative figure's failure, You and I, my beloved, are under divine judgment. We're under the curse of the law. And therefore, it took another man to come, a second Adam, as Romans chapter 5 describes him. 1 Corinthians 15 says that the first man, Adam, was made of the earth earthy. The second Adam is the Lord from heaven. He's the second man. He's the second representative figure. Here's the point. You can define human history in terms of two men. You say, who are they, Brother Mike? Charles Darwin and Thomas Edison no who are they Plato and Aristotle no who are the two men you say uh, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson no again the two men by which you can define human history are the first man Adam and the Lord Jesus Christ who's the second man the Lord from heaven because these two men represented their families the first man Adam represented all the human race all of his posterity. You and I are kin to him. We all come from the same parent, don't we? The second man represented all that were given to him in the covenant before the world began by the Father. The elect family of God. Jesus came to die for them. And My friends, what the first Adam got wrong, the second Adam got right. The problems that the first Adam gave to the world, the second Adam has rectified The first Adam, lost paradise. The second Adam, we have paradise restored. You say, well, Brother Mike, it doesn't look much like paradise today. It will one day when all of the family of God, because of what Jesus Christ has done, are taken to that upper and better world, perfectly conformed to the glorious image of Jesus Christ. My beloved heaven will be an eternal garden city that makes the garden of Eden pale into insignificance by comparison. Indeed, the two natures of Christ are a very basic Christian doctrine. And though he were a son, it says, yet he learned obedience by the things that he suffered. Notice the second important doctrine in this passage, not only the two natures of Christ, but the active and passive obedience of Christ. Now, theologians like to talk about Christ's obedience to the Father in terms of his active obedience and his passive obedience. Now, the, the terms really leave something to be desired, but because I don't know any better language to use and we will use them. The active obedience of Christ refers to his obedient life. That is, he kept the law from the cradle to the cross. Jesus always did the will of his father. Psalm 40 prophesies of the coming Messiah and it says, I come to do thy will, O God, thy law is within my heart. The question we might ask is, did he do it? Jesus came for the express purpose of living up to the law. Now, did the first Adam live up to the law? No, he disobeyed God, right? But the second man came and he lived life like God intended for life to be lived. He's the perfect man. So the first man, Adam, has failed. The second man, Adam, has succeeded. And actively, Jesus, from the cradle to the cross again, Always, always did the will of His Father. Somebody says nobody's perfect. Well, I'll tell you one person is perfect in history. The Lord Jesus Christ. He never had an evil thought. Now, can you imagine this? He never spoke unadvisedly with His lips. My mouth gets me in more trouble. Anybody that talks as much as I do is bound to get in trouble. (laughs) I often say things and then have to apologize. You ever said something and wished as soon as it came out of your mouth, you could stuff the words back in? Jesus never did that. He never had a secret thought that was displeasing to God. Never. He never displeased God or disobeyed God. He was obedient actively. And Romans 5, verse 18, tells us by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. Who's that? Adam. By one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. All of the trouble in this world is Adam's fault. Don't be too hard on him, because if you or I were in his place, we would have made the same mistakes, no doubt. But by the obedience of one, Romans five nineteen. by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, but by the obedience of one, who's that? That's the second man, Jesus. Shall many be made righteous. Now, we are primitive Baptists, right? And we believe salvation is by grace alone. It's not by works. It's not because you gave money to charity. It's not because you came from a good family. It's not because you decided to pray through or you held out and held on and you were baptized, you repented. You say, I've saved myself. I deserved it. I earned it. No, my friend, salvation is free. Grace is free. And if that wasn't the case, then there'd be no hope for any of us. Heaven would be empty and a thousand hells would be filled to capacity if grace wasn't free. But I'm telling you that while we believe that, somebody had to do some work. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, says Titus 3.5. My friends, Romans 5.19 says it is by the works of righteousness which Jesus did in our place. By one man's obedience. Many were made righteous. Somebody had to live up to the law. God gave the law. Man broke it. But Jesus lived up to it in our place. He kept it. My friends, He did it for you and for me. That is, He lived a perfect life. He never violated any of the Ten Commandments. He never violated any of the stipulations of the Jewish ceremonial law. In fact, in Matthew chapter 3, verse 15, when John was baptizing, Jesus came to him to be baptized. And John initially is hesitant. He says, I have need to be baptized of thee, and yet thou comest to me. John says, if anybody's going to be baptized, I need to be the candidate, and you need to be the administrator instead of me putting you under the water because you're not a sinner. You don't have any sins to wash away. So John is initially hesitant. But listen to what Jesus says, Matthew three fifteen: Suffer it to be so now. For thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus Christ is demonstrating his act of obedience when he says to John, Thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. That's why the very next chapter in Matthew, Matthew chapter 4, and the story of the temptation of Jesus is so important. Do you remember just as the serpent came to the first parent in the Garden of Eden and tempted him, so the devil came to the second Adam in the wilderness and tempted him. After Jesus had fasted for 40 days, Satan came to him and tempted him three times. Command that these stones be made bread. Cast yourself down from the pinnacle. The angels will take care of you. And fall down and worship me and I'll give you all of the political power. All of the kingdoms of this earth. Three temptations. And every time the second Adam won against the devil. Where the first Adam had failed the temptation, the second Adam stood his ground. He wielded the sword of the Spirit. He did not yield to temptation, but he said it is written, it is written, it is written. Jesus Christ lived a perfect life. I'm so glad that somebody got it right, aren't you? As I look at the annals of human history, I see failure after failure. The path of history is speckled with casualties. People who've tried. Here's a philosopher over here. Here's a scientist, here's a medical doctor. Here's a politician, a statesman. Here's a preacher, here's a religious person, but every one of them has feet of clay, right? Every one of them failed. Even the Bible patriarchs, Abraham lied about Sarah. Moses got angry and struck the rock when he should have spoke to it. David committed adultery and murder. Even Elijah remember got depressed. When Jezebel said that by tomorrow at this time, one of us will be dead, either you or me, Elijah. Elijah sat down under a juniper tree and said, Lord, just take my life. He's ready to die. Yes, the sins of the saints remind us that there's nobody so perfect or perfect enough to save the rest of us, much less save themselves. But my beloved, the Lord Jesus Christ took your place in mine and he did it right. He lived up to the law within his heart. He kept the law. Not only did he satisfy the penalty of the law when he bore your judgment and mine in our stead, but he lived up to the precept of the law. That's the act of obedience of Christ. But you know, the theologians also talk about the passive obedience of Christ. When he went to the cross, he submitted himself like a lamb to the slaughter. He put himself in the hands of another. And that's what Matthew 26, 39 in the Garden of Gethsemane is talking about when Jesus in agony over the hour of darkness that is quickly approaching the cross, he prays to God three times and he says, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass. Nevertheless, he says, and here's the key to what he did at the cross, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And my friends, that submission to the Father, saying, Lord, not what I want, but your will be done. I'm willing to go through with it even though it comes at great personal cost, yet I will put myself in your hands. That's the passive obedience of Christ. And my beloved, you put those two together, his perfect life and his sacrificial submissive death to the will of his Father, and you've got by one man's obedience, many were made righteous. You see, he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Jesus achieved this status of being the perfect Savior. Now, as God He was already perfect, but you see, in his human nature, our Lord Jesus proved that he is a qualified redeemer. And that's why Philippians chapter 2 says that he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. The one who thought it not rather to be equal with God, the Son of God from all eternity past, assumed our nature. He stepped down the ladder in his humiliation He was made in the likeness of men and he became obedient, obedient, obedient unto death. Even the death of the cross. That means simply he lost on purpose. I want to ask you grown-ups, have you ever lost on purpose? Maybe your son or your daughter, your grandchild said, I'll race you granddaddy. I'll race you to that tree. And you took off and you were matching them stride for stride. Now... The fact is, you probably could have beaten that little toddler, that little child, at least theoretically, right? I mean, there was a time when you could have beaten them, but as they would pull ahead, then you would pull ahead, then they would pull ahead, then as it came right close to the end, they outstretched you and touched the tree right before you did, and you say, oh, you beat me, when the reality is you lost on purpose. Maybe you've had an arm wrestling match with your child, and you've... Toyed with them for a little while and finally they've beaten you, but yet you could have beaten them hands down. You've lost on purpose. Well, that's precisely what Jesus did when he came to this earth. My beloved, death was no match for him. Sin was no match for him. The devil is no match for him. But he submitted himself and laid down his life in obedience to the father. He became obedient unto death. He let death beat him. How marvelous is that? What a miracle is the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ so that you and I might be saved. And then that brings us to the doctrine in our text of the finished work of redemption. Notice the word perfect. And being made perfect, says verse 9. That word perfect is the Greek word telos, which means to reach the goal. Now here's the finish line. That's the goal. Maybe you have a certain Level that you aim to achieve. And at work you've got a special program going on. You said we need to raise this much money. And finally when you reach the goal. You say let's have a celebration. We've achieved our objective. We reached the goal. That's the idea of telos. We get the word teleology from that. And that's the exact word Jesus used on the cross. When he said it is finished. That is one word in the Greek. Telestimehi. Is what he said. Telestimehi. Tell us. It means the goal has been accomplished. The objective has been attained. When Jesus died on the cross, he didn't say, Well, I've done my part. Now man has to do his. It's still not quite finished. My beloved, when he died on the cross, it was finished. And if it's finished, what remains to be added to it? Can you answer that? If you've finished a project, what is left to be done? Now, i've finished projects, but still they could be improved. you know let's say you put up a fence and it is reasonably square. you know the angles are ninety are about eighty nine or eighty eight degrees but I mean it's close enough for government work, right well, technically that's not finished because it's not perfect. Notice the text and being made perfect that is having reached the goal that he intended that the objective that he came to achieve being made perfect Jesus Christ perfected forever the work of salvation every nail was in place every angle was precise every T was crossed and every I was dotted to every detail the Lord Jesus Christ when he came to the cross achieved his objective perfectly you believe in a successful Savior this morning amen and amen Jesus didn't try but fail He didn't do his best, but now we've got to take up the slack. I'm telling you, our Lord Jesus Christ is a perfect redeemer. He came to save his people from their sins, and he did it. And being made perfect, having achieved his objective, that's the finished work of redemption. He's an actual Savior. It's not a hypothetical Savior. Many people preach a Savior who tried, but now man has to help him. A Savior who made salvation possible. A hypothetical Savior. I'm telling you, He's not a hypothetical Savior. He's an actual Savior. He actually achieved salvation. He secured it. He came to save His people from their sins, and He did it. He's not just a potential, but He is a real Savior. And then I want you to notice finally this morning, and being made perfect, He became the author of eternal salvation. Now, what kind of salvation are we talking about in this verse? Eternal salvation. Obviously there are many deliverances or salvations in time that we experience. Perhaps you have a near miss in an automobile accident and you say, Lord, thank you for saving me. You're not talking about saving me from hell to heaven, but you're saying, Lord, thank you for saving my life. Has God ever saved your life? Every one of us, no doubt, has had numerous deliverances. Perhaps more than we know. Who knows what lurks Beyond the front door and the window during the dead of night, my beloved. But yet God has spared me these almost 59 years. And uh, I know that I'm here today because he helped me. There's a verse in Acts chapter 26 that could be my motto for life. Having obtained help from God, I continue to this day. And that would be a good motto for you as well, my beloved. Why are you still here? Because God has helped me. God has taken care of me. He saved me. But you know, the ultimate salvation or deliverance is eternal salvation. That is salvation that has eternal consequence, that has implications for eternity. Not just saving your life from a disease or from an accident or saving your business from bankruptcy. God You say, I prayed about it and God came through and He saved, He delivered us. One more time. I'm telling you, the ultimate deliverance is rescuing me from a devil's hell, picking us up as a brand from the burning and making us as princes to inherit thrones of glory. He's lifted us from the depths of depravity to the heights of eternal bliss. That's the ultimate salvation, eternal salvation. And who's the author? You might be interested to know that the word author in this text, he became the author of eternal salvation, is a word that means the cause, the cause. And we started our message this morning by talking about the law of causality. That's the law of logic that says every effect must have a cause. If you have a loaf of bread sitting on the grocery store shelf, you know that that loaf of bread did not just magically appear. Somebody made it, right? Somebody baked it, somebody packaged it, somebody transported it. You say, well, the fellow that brought it in on the truck and put it on the shelf, he's the cause of it. No, he got it from somebody else. You trace it back to its source, right? And you find that there's a grain field somewhere, a wheat field where they harvested the wheat. You say, well, the wheat field is the cause. No, there's a first cause even before that. For who makes the grain that bears the wheat? It is the Lord, and He alone, says the hymn writer, right? The first great cause of everything that we have. God is the source of all blessings. James 1.17 says, Every good gift and perfect comes down from above, from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variableness neither shadow of turning. And here's the point. He's the cause, the author, of eternal salvation. If you have eternal salvation today, that is, if you have eternal life, If your sins have been put away and you have been brought into a vital relationship with Christ, you're a child of God today. You've been forgiven. You've been redeemed. You've been rescued. You've been saved. Where did that salvation come from? You say, well, it came from my obedience. No. Notice the verb tenses in this verse. Being made perfect, he became past tense. The word became is past tense. He became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey present tense him. Now, if you'll just use your basic fifth grade grammar, when you read the Bible, a lot of it will fall right into place and you'll understand it. You know, that's the problem that many people have when they try to interpret scripture is they try to make it more difficult than it really is. And the Bible means what it says and says what it means. He became, past the cause of eternal salvation through his obedience. He became, he learned obedience and being made perfect. He achieved the objective for which he came. And that meant that he is a successful savior. He is the cause of eternal salvation unto all them that now obey him. You show me somebody who is living obediently to the Lord right now. I'll show you somebody who gives evidence that the Lord has caused their salvation. What I'm trying to say is your obedience is not the condition or the cause of your salvation. In fact, nothing you or I do can save our souls from hell. We can't save ourselves. You say, well, sinner, if you'll just accept it, if you'll just believe, if you'll make a decision, all you've got to do is sign this card and you can go to heaven. No, my friends, all of the things that we do are effects of the salvation that He is the cause of. Does that make any sense? I think the best way to explain it may be the words to the hymn that we sing sometimes. Listen to this. His love from eternity fixed upon you broke forth and discovered its flame when each with the cords of His kindness He drew and brought you to love His great name. Why do you love God today? Because He drew you with His cords of love. Oh, had He not pitied the state that you were in, your bosom, his love, ne'er would have felt. You all would have lived, would have died too in your sins and sunk with the load of your guilt. What was there in you that could merit esteem? Ask yourself that question today. Is there anything good or noteworthy in you or me to attract God's attention? What was there in you to merit esteem or give the creator delight? T'was even so, Father, we ever must sing, because it seemed good in thy sight. Now listen to this. T'was all of thy grace we were brought to obey. Obedience. What brought you to obey God today? Why do you try to live a godly life? Why do you want to please Him? Twas all of your grace we were brought to obey while others were suffered to go the road which by nature we chose as our way which leads to the regions of woe. Then give all the glory to His holy name. To Him all the glory belongs. Be yours the high pleasure to sound forth His fame and crown Him in each of your songs. My friends, every one of God's children will obey God Passively when they're born again, just like Lazarus obeyed the voice of the Son of God when Jesus said in John 11, Lazarus come forth, Lazarus came forth, he obeyed. So my beloved, when the Lord speaks to your heart and mine and to every object of his love and regeneration, he says in John 5.25, the hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and they that hear shall live. That kind of irresistible grace is an obedience. It's a form of obedience, is it not? Just as when Jesus spoke to the winds and waves on the Sea of Galilee, it says, what manner of man is this, that even the winds and the seas obey his voice. The master of the tempest around us can command or even force inanimate nature, and it will obey him passively, If you please, may I say every child of grace that he calls effectually into divine life comes forth. They respond below the level of consciousness. And in that sense, every one of us will obey the Lord irresistibly. But even our active obedience in life, when you're baptized, when you try to minister to somebody else, when you pray and read God's word, when you seek to do good works, Even that, my beloved, is an evidence of grace. 1 John 2.29 says, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. Your deeds of righteousness, your obedience, are evidences of a gracious state. Romans 2.14 says, when the Gentiles which have not the law do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law, are a law unto themselves which show the work of the law written in their hearts there's the cause and the effect is that they do by this instinct this divine instinct the things contained in the law one of the earliest evidences of a gracious state is that a person seeks to try to change the way he or she is living Cornelius, when Peter preached to him, Acts 10.35, Peter said, uh, I perceive God is no respecter of persons. For in every nation, he that worketh righteousness and feareth God is accepted with him. That is already accepted. They give evidence that they belong to God. What I'm saying this morning, my beloved, is eternal salvation is unconditional. And where human works are referenced, they are evidences, not conditions of a gracious state. Christ's obedience is the cause of your eternal salvation. Your obedience is one of numerous effects and evidences of it. These verses teach that this morning. So what I've done this morning is I've preached you a basic doctrinal sermon. And I don't want to interrupt the flow of thought as we're trying to learn the development of the plot in the book of Hebrews, but I thought that these two verses are too precious and important to just skim over them. And therefore, I wanted to come back this morning and talk about the subject of obedience, Christ's and yours. His is the cause, yours is the effect. It's a very important Bible principle. I hope that what I've said today resonates in your heart. And if you haven't obeyed his command to be baptized, my friends, May I say when you do that, it won't save you for heaven, but it will be one of the fruits of salvation. It will give you evidence that my hope is in Him. I'm depending on Him and Him alone for my eternal salvation. Jesus Christ is everything to me. If you've not taken that step, we bid you to come today as we stand to sing some appropriate hymn.
1: In songs of sublime and array,
0: listening to Grace Alone Radio Network streaming Bible teaching from a primitive Baptist perspective
1: around the clock and around the world